Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. My name is Cray Bolger, along with Jacob Avila and Mike Prats. Hello. Hey, Cray. Today we're talking aorta. We are reviewing a paper from the European uh, Heart Journal in 2019. The integration of transthoracic focused cardiac ultrasound in the diagnostic algorithm for suspected acute aortic syndromes. That is a mouthful. This is from Nazarian et al. And the reason why this study is coming about is aortic dissection, aortic aneurysm um, kind of plague us. They're one of those mysterious diagnoses that we really struggle with. They're high risk, they're high mortality and morbidity. Um, but they're the great masqueraders. They present like kidney stones, blood clots, acute coronary syndrome. And a lot of times they're very hard to diagnose. This group looks at the data from a previous study and where we were looking at the utility of D-dimers in diagnosing acute aortic syndromes and looks at how can we apply ultrasound to this patient population. So they said, we've got all this data, let's look at where ultrasound fits, especially for dissection flaps, root aneurysms, and dilations and regurgitation, all the secondary findings of these pathologies. Can we use ultrasound to help risk stratify and identify this patient population? My impression, much like D-dimer, using a focused ultrasound to evaluate for aortic catastrophes is kind of it's, it's useful and we teach it a lot, but we don't know if it's really as accurate as we would like it to be for this high-risk diagnosis. So I was excited to hear about this study because it seems like they did a nice job trying to solve this question. So does your point-of-care cardiac ultrasound help you to identify some of these aortic pathologies? And this is from the ADVISED group. So that stands for Aortic Dissection Detection Risk Score Plus D-Dimer in Suspected acute aortic dissection group, but this is basically a big international group with representatives from Italy, Brazil, Germany, and Switzerland who did this large study looking at the utility of D-dimer in aortic dissection and aortic emergencies. The original study, we'll link to it in the show notes, but the inclusion criteria that they used were anybody that was an adult and had any of the following symptoms, chest, abdominal, back pain, syncope, or perfusion deficits, or pretty much anybody that they were worried about an aortic problem. They excluded primary traumatic injuries and also obviously people that would not consent. And here's how it went for the study. Someone would come into the emergency department, they were worried about an aortic problem, and they would automatically order a D-dimer. They used a D-dimer cutoff, 500 nanograms per milliliter. Then they calculated something called the Aortic Dissection Detection Risk Score, ADDRS. And you can easily look this up, but if you haven't heard of it before, it's kind of a nice scoring system because it's fairly binary the way they used it. If you had one point or less, you're considered low risk, and if you had more than that, you were considered high risk. And you could get a point for one of three things, either having a high risk condition, such as connective tissue disorder or a known aortic problem already. Secondly, having a high risk pain feature, or lastly, having a high risk 
exam feature, such as a focal neurodeficit or a new murmur, for example. Have you heard of this before? And if so, do you use this clinically, the aortic dissection detection risk score? I'm fascinated by this. These authors invented it, and it hasn't really been validated yet. It's my understanding. I wonder if that's, is that like one of the parts of like the reason they're doing this study is to figure out if this risk stratification tool, because it'd be nice if we had something, you know, like Wells, something like PERC, which I know those aren't the necessarily the same exact uh, tests, uh, but for PE, it'd be nice if we had something like that for dissection. Yeah, I think so. Um, there are a lot of things that people can use to try to help with the diagnosis of aortic dissection and other aortic emergencies. But so far, none of them have been good enough. So these authors are thinking, hey, maybe if we add them all together, then that would be good enough. I think one of the problems with dissection in aortic pathologies is there's not a classic presentation, right? Like that's the paper from 2015 that all the stuff we teach in med school about the tearing back pain and all the classic findings of dissection really don't have high predictive value. So it's hard to make a risk stratification tool when the disease is such an enigma. Yeah, I mean, it's just like not fair. Like when a patient presents like with a dissection without chest pain, you know, like that's like, what are you supposed to do, you know? Yeah. But that maybe that's why, you know, this stuff is, you know, they're looking at this, right? Because it'd be nice if we had something um, more objective that could help us figure that out. It sure would. Sure would be great. Maybe this is the answer. So when their patients came in, they all got these point of care echoes and these were filled out in a standardized form saying their all of their findings. Then this was compared to either CT angiography, a transesophageal echo, MR angiography, surgery or an autopsy. Now, not all of their patients had one of those things. So, if they didn't, then they did a 14-day telephone interview to make sure that they hadn't died or exploded. Now, when they define acute aortic syndrome, what this paper is looking for, they're talking about dissection, aortic hematoma, penetrating aortic ulcer, and spontaneous aortic rupture. That's the exploding part. These scans were done by cardiologists, internal medicine physicians, and emergency medicine physicians. They all had at least a year of training, but no specific training for this study, it appears. They were using the phased array transducer, which is the clear choice for your cardiac windows. And all that they had to have for the study was one or more of any of these views. A parasternal view, apical view, suprasternal, subcostal, or abdominal aorta, or a carotid artery view. Now this is an important thing, what they were looking for, because they broke this down into two categories. There's direct findings and there's indirect findings. Direct findings means they were actually visualizing an intimal flap or a hematoma or an aortic ulcer. Indirect were thoracic aorta dilation, pericardial effusion, or aortic valve regurgitation. So they broke down the results then into both how accurate is the direct findings and how accurate are the indirect findings. And then they also looked at ultrasound alone, ultrasound plus ADD score, and D-dimer score. So there's tons and tons of data here. Jacob, can you help us sift through some of this data and figure out what's actually important? Yeah, for sure. This, I mean, it's just a phenomenal study, um, at least from my point of view, because I really enjoy, I mean, I don't want my patients to have pathology, but if they have pathology, I definitely want to find it. And I think dissection is one of the more interesting ones. So Apart from like ultrasound in general, I think this study has a lot of good data just for patients with 
the acute aortic syndrome, which to be honest, I'm not sure I've ever seen a penetrating aortic ulcer, but that's, you know, kind of one of the things they mentioned. Now, you did say that this was a kind of a secondary analysis of a different study. Um, now, the first publication had 1,850 patients included, but the total number in this population or in this group was 839 patients. 17.4% of them ended up having that acute aortic syndrome. And if you break those down, 10% had a type A aortic dissection, which is the most common. 3% had a type B aortic dissection. 2.4% had an intramural hematoma. And 1.3% had spontaneous aortic rupture with, and then lastly, 0.4 had a penetrating aortic ulcer. Now, as far as their outcomes, they, they basically looked at four different things. And it was a little bit hard to kind of sift through it. But what we got was the first thing is they looked at the overall accuracy for their focus examination for acute aortic syndromes. Their second question was, does focus increase the accuracy compared to using only that risk stratification tool that they made? Their third thing was how accurate is the combination of the two, so ultrasound and that ADDRS risk stratification tool that they used. And then lastly, what happens when they add in the D-dimer? So a lot of data here. Um, let's start with the overall accuracy of your ultrasound for acute aortic syndrome. To me, this actually fits with everything that I've seen. So for a direct sonographic sign, so basically that's if you see a flappy thing within the aorta, and you should never see a flappy thing within the aorta, they had a positive likelihood ratio of 17.4, which remember to be able to use a test, it's got to be greater than 10. So basically you see a flappy thing, it's a dissection. The negative likelihood ratio was 0.56. Now that does not reach a level at which you can use it to rule out, which is nothing groundbreaking. I think we already knew that. You want a negative likelihood ratio less than 0.1. It's 0.56. And then if you happen to want to know, the specificity was 97.4 and the sensitivity was 45.2%. So not sensitive enough to rule out, but definitely very specific. So if you look at all of the other secondary signs, the highest positive likelihood ratio from the secondary signs is a pericardial effusion with a positive likelihood ratio of 5.86. The negative likelihood ratios are, are pretty bad, 0 0.47, 0 0.96, 0 0.65. So basically you can't really use the secondary signs to rule in or rule out. If you use any sonographic sign, so at all, you almost get there. You have a negative likelihood ratio of 0.15 for any sonographic sign, and that has with it a sensitivity of 89%. So basically what I'm taking from this, which is what I kind of took already before I read the study, is you see a flappy thing, has a high positive likelihood ratio. If you see any of the other things, you can't necessarily rule in or rule out, but it can push you one way or the other. But this is the starting point. This is what this study is all about. It's saying we know all comers that you're concerned about, ultrasound's not good enough. Yeah. So right. then what happens if you combine it with the you know pretest probability calculator? The adders? Can I just call it the adders, A-D-D-R-S? I like adders, yeah. It reminds me of uh, a snake. An otter. Oh, I was thinking of an otter. <laughs> <laughs> the, oh, yeah, otters, adders, uh, the A-D-D-R-S. So it did actually improve it. So if you look at the area under the curve, um, when you added the focus to the adders, it increased it from 0.77 to 0.88. And that's if you use focus with any sign. So it did, it did help a bit when you combine the two things together. Okay. 
I'm getting more convinced. What else you got? So when you look at the focus examination in low probability patients, according to that adders score, if you have any focus finding, look at that, with the low probability patient, you have a negative likelihood ratio of 0.17. We're so close, Mike and Craig. We're so close. But remember, we technically have to be below that 0.1 marker. So we're, we're getting closer and closer. But even if it doesn't get below that level that we want, the way that Bayesian statistics work is it's, it's often not a all or none thing. It's pushing you more towards the probability or less towards the probability of a patient having a certain disease, right? I have a sneaking suspicion that by the end of this, we're going to get there. And now the last thing that they looked at was the holy grail here. So a negative adders or a low risk adders, so less or equal to one, direct focus signs absent and D-dimer negative, negative likelihood ratio of zero and a sensitivity of 100%. They did it. Pop the champagne. We finally, finally got there. This makes wow. my skeptical heart happy because yeah. I don't like that any focus. I need that direct focus, especially if I'm giving it to anybody right. else. I have to be like big tube, flappy thing, bad. If you're saying like look for any abnormality and you're talking about valve regurgitation, that's just not applicable to most of our users, right? Yeah, and it's great because with 100% accuracy using the direct signs only, we don't have to worry about it being not sensitive enough, you know. So they they reanalyzed it using any sign and obviously you can't get much better than it already was. Yeah, the other thing that, you know, there was a number of different operators that were doing the scan. So one thing they mentioned in the results was cardiologists versus non-cardiologists and who was performing it. And they did see some differences there. Cardiologists appeared to be a little bit more sensitive for the direct signs, but there wasn't really any statistical difference when they looked at all of the signs overall. One thing I like about papers is when they put all of their findings into a nice, neat algorithm at the end. And these authors did that quite nicely where they take this data and their conclusions from it. And then they give you a nice little figure where you can say, if your patient has this, here's what you should do. Did you guys agree with those findings? Because the, the main thing was that they said, if you have a low risk patient and your ultrasound was negative, do a D-dimer. If the D-dimer was negative, consider it ruled out. If it's positive, get something else to figure out if they really have one. I like that. I wish I would like to see this adopted because I really think we have a lot of those people who say the right words that you have to do something, but you really don't think they need radiation. Or maybe you think they need a different test because if you look at when they screened positive, the alternate diagnoses that they had, they're the things we worry about, right? PE, pneumonia, coronary disease. But how often do we like scan people and it ends up being completely negative? All the time. You know? And I'm yeah. not, I am anti-contrast induced nephropathy, but you're taking somebody who is at baseline at risk for like the wind causing a kidney injury, right? Like <laughs> by being somebody that you're caring about dissection. So like my contrast, while I don't think it's by itself different than a day of not drinking or an extra dose of meds, it's still a hit and it's a risk that we maybe don't need to take now. Yeah, I like that. Now, what, a, what about this other part of their algorithm that if you have a 
low-risk patient and you do see indirect signs, so let's say they have a pericardial effusion or maybe they even have a increased diameter on their thoracic aorta, they suggest in this patient you can get a D-dimer and if that's negative, still rule it out, no further imaging needed. I think, I mean, I think that that's reasonable. Well, that was a lot of results. Let me just, if I can, give you some bullet summaries for all of those things. So, first point is that we know ultrasound, especially the direct signs of aortic dissection or aortic problems, is very specific, but the remainder of the signs are not sensitive enough. Then, when you add ultrasound to the adders, it improves the accuracy over the adders alone, and it also seems to improve the sensitivity of ultrasound if you apply it to a low-risk group by the adders. So now we're talking about better sensitivities, but still not good enough. Then we add in the D-dimer, and now we're at 100% sensitivity. Is that a fair summary? I love it. So what's the problem? Is this good to go? Can we start using this? roll out some policies? My kind of thoughts on it, if I can kind of jump in, is, I mean, seems like a pretty good study. It's like multi-centered. It has like 800 patients in it. Like, I think that this is probably okay to use. What I would like is I'd like like a policy statement from either, you know, maybe like the ultrasound section of ASAP or ASAP itself talking about using this, kind of like how we have a ASAP policy that talks about age-adjusted D-dimers, you know? If we had something like that, I would be 100% comfortable using it. The only reason, the only reason, and it's maybe because I'm a little bit of a um, conservative right now with, you know, any kind of EM stuff, especially dissections, is this is like kind of new data. And so I, I think that it, even though the evidence seems like it's there based off of this study, I'm not convinced that this is necessarily standard of care. And that's kind of not the same thing. Standard of care and evidence base is not always exactly the same thing. Jacob, I have some wonderful news for you that I think will make you smile. Tell me. This is supported by the European Society of Cardiology Guidelines. It was supported in 2014. The authors seem to want to do this study to justify the guidelines that are already in place, in fact. So in a way, especially if you live in Europe, you're covered. That did make me happy. I did not know about those guidelines. And when I checked them out, they seemed kind of bold for the level of evidence at the time of their development, because they essentially said this same thing that you can, they highly recommended the use of a focused cardiac ultrasound. It was a level 1C recommendation, which is the ones you should be worried about because it's a high recommendation with low evidence. But that was their recommendation for using point-of-care ultrasound in these patients. I think we, as we mentioned before, you have to be a little bit careful because this entire study was a secondary endpoint of their main study. So remember that when they were doing all of their power calculations and their main analysis, this was not the focus back then. So you always have to be cognizant that there could be some biases introduced when analyzing these smaller endpoints. The other thing that I was a little bit worried about was that the population that got ultrasound was only about half of the population in their original study. I think we said there was like 1,600 or 1,800 patients originally, and now in the ultrasound study, there was only about half of that. So we don't know who got ultrasound and why. So again, there's 
the possibility of bias. Like maybe only the really sick looking ones got a quick ultrasound or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's the people that had time to just sit there and they're like, well, they're stable. We might as well check an ultrasound. So we don't know how that biased the population because there's no comparison of the groups that got ultrasound and the groups that did not get ultrasound. The only other thing I thought of was what we mentioned about the gold standard. Some of these people only got a telephone call and not an actual imaging study to confirm or refute their diagnosis. And that's that's less than ideal for something like this, but you know, sounded reasonable. Maybe they could have extended the 14 days to a little bit longer to make sure they were catching all the pathology. I think the other caveat with this is these findings don't go away, right? So we might hang our hat on an acute finding when it's actually been there for years um, and might, might not be causing symptomatology. Like I found many a flap that's a chronic flap, right? That's, um, or a neural thrombus and it's being watched. And if you don't know that, like do you take them down this pathway and do you miss the real diagnosis? And last but not least, what do you guys think about being too sensitive. What? What are you talking about? You know how when we we're not satisfied with very low miss rates. So, are we trying to take something that you know without introducing the D dimer, they only had a less than two percent miss rate. So now we're adding in the ultrasound to the D dimer and the risk score to have a zero percent miss rate. I guess that could potentially result in doing more testing, finding more things. Increases the false positives. Right. Just a thought. I know. That is a thought. Just dropping some controversy out there. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me summarize this study. They prospectively enrolled 839 patients in a secondary endpoint study from their original trial. And they ended up showing all of those things that we went through. And their main finding was that if you combine the adders plus a negative D-dimer plus no direct signs of aortic syndromes, then they had a 100% sensitivity. So here are the take-home points we developed from this. In the secondary endpoint prospective observational study, the combination of those things, the risk score, the D-dimer, the focused cardiac ultrasound, was very sensitive for acute aortic syndromes. Secondly, direct signs of acute aortic syndromes were very specific for this diagnosis. However, because this was a secondary endpoint, we think that there's probably going to need to do some more research to further validate these findings. But I have to say, this is an incredible study. You definitely need to know about it and read it for yourself. Really well done, really large sample, many centers over the world. So we applaud the authors, wonderful work. And as usual, we thank you for still listening to us. If you want to find out more, you can go to ultrasoundgel.org, check us out on Facebook, or talk to any of us on Twitter where we would love to hear from you. Until then, we will talk to you later. More. More. Gel. More. More. Jacob just ate a blueberry pancake. Well, there was, no, there was, there was nut butter on it too. Nut butter? Yeah.